Of course, the Apostle Paul was always going to be for us an important biblical character. We are a missionary people. We're, we define our lives really by our engagement with the sort of unsurrendered world. And so he is always, he will, will always be an important figure for those of us that see ourselves as missionary, this brave but broken first missionary. I mean, he's the, the first one who steps out when no one else would. He, 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 is, he is a picture of what it can look like when we break new ground, when we lay down our lives for Jesus in the frontier. Um, you know, when you, when you step into a world you don't understand quite yet, but you go there because Jesus has asked you to go there and doing it for love, this is this, is this person. But I think I've been struck lately by, not, not by his, his innovation or his breakthrough or his apostolic nature, but what, I've, what I have been really gravitating to in my own devotional life and my own journey with Paul lately, maybe, maybe even as far as a year, is his emotional honesty, which just courses through the pages of his writing. His openness about the darkness in his inner life. His vulnerability, actually, in sharing just how hard it has been for him and how, how, how that, was so, that has been so overlooked in my reading of Paul, actually, till this point in my life, that I've always seen him as a kind of triumphalist, as somebody that just was tough as nails and had no fear and never shrank back. And, and the truth is, he was tough, and, and he did overcome his fear, and he didn't shrink back, and yet he, he's so candid about his struggle against this world. I don't think that the Apostle Paul would say that ministry or mission was easy, if we could put it that way. I mean, just this, this, this book alone, this is, this is part of why I've been in 2 Corinthians lately, just this book alone has texts like, I mean, in every single chapter there is an opening up of his heart and, and, and this sort of candid emotional honesty about his struggles. This is the same book that has, what, chapter 4, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. This is the same book where he says, though outwardly we are wasting away. That's, in other words, you look at us and we look like crap. You know, have you ever seen a friend like, man, you look, you look bad. And you don't want to tell them that, but maybe you do. And they're like, thanks, man. You know, you really look bad. You look like you haven't slept. You look, you know, you look peaked. You, you look unhealthy. This is, this is outwardly saying we are wasting away. You see that. And yet inwardly, we're being renewed. He says of this tent, this body that he lives in, again, Thank you, Grands. They finally turned the lights on. This is how this building works, by the way. Um, <laughs> outwardly, we are wasting away. He says, he says uh, of, of this body, while we are in this tent, he says, we groan and we are burdened. 
Chapter 6, he says, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, and sleepless nights, and hunger. Who wants to sign up for this? This sounds good. In in, in purity, and understanding, and patience, and kindness, and the Holy Spirit, sincere love. Yeah, all those things too. But also through glory and dishonor, through bad report. This, this, this sucks. Through bad report and good report, some people talk trash, some people like us, in genuine, yet, yet we're always regarded as imposters. We're known, yet we're regarded as unknown. We're dying, and yet we live on. We're beaten, yet we're not killed. We're sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing. We're poor, yet we make many rich. We have nothing, yet we possess everything. Chapter 7, for when we, were in, when we came into Macedonia, he's just talking about his life, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. This is the description of his ministry. Harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. Can someone relate to that? Chapter 11, I've worked harder. He said, I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes. This is all just the book of 2 Corinthians. Three times I was beaten with rods. I mean, dude's keeping a list, you know what I mean? (laughs) Journal entry today, beaten with rods again. Once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked, shipwrecked again, spent a night and a day in the open sea, which sucks, by the way. That's not, that's not a tropical paradise. You're dying of thirst in salt water. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And this, this is what he said. This is how open he is. This is how honest he is. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin, he says, and I do not inwardly burn? The threats are outside of me, the threats are inside me. He's, this is no Superman. And then, of course, there's that famous. Most famous of all the texts in 2 Corinthians near the end when he, may, maybe to some degree he's coming to terms with some of these, these, these I don't know, disclosures about himself when he, when he talks about this thorn he has in his flesh. This, this thing that won't go away, this, this burden in his flesh. And he says, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Remember that line. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. I delight in them. I 
I think it is this juxtaposition between the greatness of his life, his innovation, his pioneering mission, and this honest depiction of his inner anguish of his life in the doing of that. That's so beautiful and powerful and important for us as missionary people. There's something here for us. Because it does seem sometimes like we're caught between these, these two uh, extreme choices. On the one hand, it is to be a hero, to suck it up, to not let anyone see your weakness or your pain or your struggle. And on the other hand, it is to go so deeply into your pain, to become so self-centered, so concerned about your own health, that you will, you will eventually have to abandon ministry itself. And God, actually. Because I do think there's always a kind of pain associated with following a crucified God. But there is that, that first temptation, I think, to just be this hero. This person that has no problems. To live for God, to live for others, to never complain, to stuff your own pain down, to stuff your own doubts, to be a good soldier, obedient and silent. So there is pain. Nobody's not, nobody's not experiencing that. But there is this temptation, and maybe even, maybe even some of you have, have taken on this tactic to pretend like it is not there. There is struggle. But no, you're just, no, what struggle? It's no problem. So it made me think of this video, which, listen, if I'm going to show you a video, you know it's going to be good. So <laughs> I'm going to show you a video. I don't often do this, but I have to. And you've probably, maybe you've seen it because I, I'm not on the internet that much. But this is a guy who's, he's going to tell you about the, the value of petting your dog. Like the, the good qualities of like after a long day at work, whatever you, to feel good about life, you want to pet your dog. So anyway, just, let's just check, check out this video. After a long day at work, I just want to come home and <laughs> pet my dog. <laughs> it releases oxytocin. It's bonding. <laughs> the dog likes it too. <laughs> I think that's a great picture of option one. Smile. Talk a good game. Pretend like the dog is not mauling your hand. 
There's what you say, and then there's what you're experiencing and what people are actually seeing. And so really all of that, that temptation to just be a hero, suck it up, pretend like you don't have any problems, pretend like ministry is always great and God is always there and there's no problems and you never fail. It's, it's not fooling anyone anyway. Or the other extreme, I suppose, would be to put your own struggle and your own pain. And I've talked about this before, so I won't belabor this. This idea of self-love, you know. To put your own pain, your own struggle, your own needs at the center of your life's reality. To talk only about that. Until you come to this conclusion that to be healthy, and I've seen, I've seen people do this, so have you. You come to a conclusion that in order to be healthy, in order to really care for yourself, to really love yourself, you're going to need to exclude God from your life because the truth is He is calling you into trouble and darkness and difficulty. It's, and may, maybe there is such a thing as a version of Christianity that does not involve that, but I, I'm not familiar with it. It does not seem to me to be authentic. Something about Paul, he's honest about it, about, yes, about his struggles, about how difficult it is and can be and has been for him, but also about the greatness of God, the glory that is soon to be revealed in his own life, in his own body, and even joy. Actually, if you look at each time he talks about the depth of his own struggles, there's always this contrast with joy. Some thing God is giving to him in the place of extreme trial and so I feel like there's some sort of blueprint here for us on how to do it if you have ever felt despairing if you have ever felt under pressure and trouble because of ministry there is maybe a blueprint here to feel that deep kind of despair that despondency even futility or fear and to find your way back to hope and love and even some kind of transcendent joy Um, the other day, I was, we, I was staying in a hotel with um, Luke, my 17-year-old, and we had, we had already left the room, and so he had to go to the bathroom, and so I, I, I remembered seeing like kind of a public bathroom that was down the hall, so we went there, and as we were walking up to the bathroom, we could hear like, uh, like someone singing in the bathroom. It was like Moaning Myrtle was, was, in, the, was in the... It really sounded like that because it was like echoey, and it was like a, like a child's voice singing, <laughs> and it was... <laughs> And so Luke goes to the door, and he's like, I don't know, Dad. I don't know if I want to go in there. I don't know what's going on. But it was this sort of creepy Disney singing voice happening out of this, this cavernous public restroom. And so I'm like, dude, you got to go. Get in there. So he opens the door. He goes in, and this is what he sees. This is, this is what he sees. He sees a five-year-old with, with their pants down, pooping, like actually di having diarrhea all over the... I know. All over the, all over the, the, not in the stall, out in the main, in the main <laughs> bathroom area. His parents are there trying to deal with the, the chaos, the melee of just, 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 just projectile diarrhea. <laughs> I thought we were going to be real. Projectile diarrhea. And he's singing. Do you understand? He's singing happy Disney songs and smiling. 
la, 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 la. So the parents are dying. Everything from here down is bad. Everything from here up is good. I had to see for myself. And I'm going to be honest, I was amazed. I was amazed by the whole thing, the whole stinking show. I was just like <laughs> envious. I mean, you know what I'm saying, like metaphorically envious, not physically actually. But, and maybe I'll come back to this too, this, this sort of kindergarten, this ethic of the kindergartner, you know, that, that that's, there's something profound about a child's strength, their ability to cry one second and laugh the next, to actually feel deeply something maybe that you don't need to feel that deeply actually, like it's okay, Junior, you know, you just dropped your lollipop, you can calm down, the world is not ending, but to still feel like, feel the fullness of, of pain, I guess, and then at the same time, and almost with, with, with such grace, actually to flow just right into the fullness of life's joy. And, and in the case of this, this little schizophrenic five-year-old, to feel them both at the same time. <laughs> Amazing. I want that. Paul has that. Pooping and singing at the same time. Come on, guys. I do not want you to be uninformed, he starts this little bit. I do not want you to be uninformed. What a thing to say. What a thing to start with. You need to know this. You need this information. What information do we need, Paul? What information do we need to know before you start this whole tome? This whole what would become sacred scripture and the canon of scripture for us. What is this thing we need to know? It is that we have been torn apart. I mean, we just came from a, from a ministry season where we, we thought we were going to die. And I agree with Julie. I think he's talking about inner thing. I, I, he's despairing of life itself. It was so hard, so arduous, so anguishing that actually we just, we just thought it's better to not be alive. That's how hard it was. We do not want you to be uninformed of the way we felt when we were in Asia. Maybe why? I mean, it just begs the question, why, why is this information that we need? I mean, at one level, you think it's bad leadership. Like, don't, ooh, if you want to recruit people for the cause, like, chill on that. Like, bring that down a little bit. Tell them, no, it's been great, and it's awesome, and the pay is good, and, and everyone loves you, and, yeah, sometimes some things happen. It's not perfect, but anyway, it's really great. Like, downplay the bad parts, you know, lift up the good parts. Somebody say, we don't want you to be uninformed because we don't want you to think that your brave walk with Jesus is going to be any different. 
And then he uses this word, Lisa brought it up, this, this, this phrase, far beyond our ability to endure. In other words, it isn't so much that God is always going to bring, yeah, it'll be hard, but it'll always be within your reach to be able to control it or be within your reach to be able to endure it. No, no, it's going to be beyond your ability to endure and not just beyond. I mean, this is, this is, this is what Paul is doing with language here. He's saying not just, just slightly beyond your ability to handle it, but way beyond your ability to handle it. Can you understand that? Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Let's work with that word for a second. Overwhelmed. Have you ever felt that? By life, by ministry, by by the pressures that you're feeling. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? This is what he's talking about. In over your head, drowning. And you actually, I mean, the other day, maybe it was was two weeks ago, I stuck my head on my desk. You can ask Elisa, she was there. Stuck my head on my desk and I just said, this is too much. It's too much. That's what he's talking about. I don't want you to be uninformed that this walk you're on, this, this, this missionary thing, you're going to be brought to a place not where you just say, this is, this is just what I can handle or just at the point of my, my breaking, but it's beyond, way beyond your point of breaking. And if you've ever felt overwhelmed, then you, you've prayed this prayer. It's a short prayer. It's a powerful prayer. It's, it's, it goes something like this. I can't. I just can't. There's that powerful scene, if you've ever, you've ever saw that, that old um, movie about Oscar Romero's life called Romero, where, where he's, he's, you know, fighting against colonization and this deep, dark injustice of the church in, 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 in El Salvador and he, and he, and he, he, he's seeing his own priest jailed and killed and murdered and he just says there's this powerful thing where he, he goes to pray and he goes to the chapel and he says um, I can't you must I'm yours that's the prayer I'm talking about these, these utterances you know and then, it, of course, it begs the question, why would God do this to us? Why would, he, why, would he, why would he put on us a burden that's beyond our ability to bear it? Why would he, which, by the way, if we, if we go back to that text, like he will not test you beyond what you can handle, that has to do with temptation, it has to do with sin. So that bit about he will not tempt you beyond what you can handle, that's, God will not put, he will not put a temptation, he will not allow a temptation that you can't say no to. There's always a way out of sin, Always. But sometimes he puts a burden, I mean, the burden of, of endurance, which is beyond us, actually. And the question becomes, why? Why would he do this to us? Because, and here's the answer, because it's right here in this text. Because the worst thing that a person can do in ministry is not to sin or fail. It's not to be wrong or even to hurt someone. Those things can be covered. Those things can be forgiven. Those things can be reconciled. Those things can be worked through. Because actually they're all just added to the catalog of ways that human beings hurt each other. It's just another way in which we can and do hurt each other. The biggest threat to your ministry is not that you would fail or that you would say something wrong. It's not that you'd be a sinner because, by the way, there is no other kind of missionary besides sinners. But it is that you will do ministry in your own strength. 
that the people who you work with, that you care about, that you're pouring out your life for, who need Jesus the most, would in the end have only you to save them. All this, he says, happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but God. Look at that line. All of this happened. All of this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but God. I'm fascinated by, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a guy who's taken a, uh, what's called the marshmallow, marshmallow Spaghetti Challenge and sort of turned it into this research piece, a guy called Tom Wujek. And basically what the challenge is, is you, you can do this with teams. And you, you give them 20, 20 pieces of dry spaghetti. So 20 pieces of uncooked spaghetti. I think a yard of tape, a yard of string, and one marshmallow. This is, and what you have to do, and you have 18 minutes. And what you have to do as a team is you have to work together to build the tallest structure possible that holds the marshmallow at the top. So the marshmallow has to sit at the top. Has anyone heard of this experiment? So you have to do this. 20 pieces of spaghetti, you got 18 minutes, one yard of tape, one yard of string, and somehow the marshmallow's gotta sit on top. Now what's interesting, at least in, in, in all the stuff that they've done, and they've done it with Fortune, they've done it with CEOs, they've done it with Fortune 50 companies, they've done it with executives, they've done it with, with MBA students, they've done it with MBA graduates, they've, they've done it with a whole kind of cadre of, of people. And what's interesting is to compare who does well and who does bad, who outperforms others, because you can just measure what's the average height of those teams and how well they do. What's interesting, if you, if you want to know, the people that do the worst on this this thing are, are recent MBA graduates. So people out of business school, just graduated business school and they do, they do horribly at it. Also he says, uh, remarkably, executives in Fortune 50 companies cheat. So what they do is they go get things that you're not allowed to use and they'll, they'll cheat to win. Um, maybe that's not interesting or remarkable, uh, but there it is. But do you want to know who outperforms both those, all those kind of adult categories? Do you want to know what group of people outperforms them? That, that on average, maybe what, what would be a 10-inch, on average, like MBA students, which is one of the lowest actually, uh, they'll have like a 10-inch structure. And on average, the group that outperforms them by, by 26 inches is the average sculpture they'll do or the average thing they'll build is recent graduates, not, of, not recent business school graduates, recent graduates of kindergarten. <laughs> Consistently outperform executives, you college students, they beat you. Now this is what's interesting. So why, well, how is it that these, how is it that, that five and six year olds <laughs> can do that? And, and there's a couple things they notice. One is, particularly with executives or particularly with these MBA graduates, one of the first things they do, waste their time on, you could say, is jockey for power. So they start figuring out who's, who's, where's, what's the pecking order? You know, who's in charge? Who's going to run the spaghetti building project? You know, that's, that's the important thing. Kindergartners don't do that. They just jump in. They spend no time figuring out who's in charge. None. They just start working together. 
Also, um, you know, these, these sort of educated people, what they tend to do is they tend to figure out who's in charge. So they, they want to answer the power question. They want to make a plan. So they start strategizing. They strategize, not touching anything. They start strategizing what they're going to do. Make a plan and then execute that plan. And invariably what happens is they finally get to their plan that they've worked out through their power structure that they've installed. And then at the last minute, they put the marshmallow on top and the thing breaks. Whereas kindergartners, this is, this is fascinating. Kindergartners, what they do, they have no interest in power, no interest in who's in charge. They get in there, and they, they, even the way that they communicate with them is short bursts. It's like, try this. What about this? No, this. Put that there. They just, they just start working with each other and with their hands, and they always start with the marshmallow on top. So whatever they build, and they fail many times. So Wujak wants to call it prototyping. They, 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 they build a thing knowing that it will fail, seeing that it will fail so they can build another one, so they can build another one. So within the 18 minutes, they built five structures and the last one works. As opposed to sitting around, figuring out who's in charge, trusting in our own ability to plan and execute a strategy, putting that strategy in, and then at the last second, putting on the marshmallow and realizing we, we've, we've underestimated. And he says, they actually say that one of the, one of the key problems is, 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 is what you call like a false assumption coming into the thing, which is that the marshmallow is light, but it actually isn't light. It's uh, comparatively to the other stuff, it's actually kind of heavy. And the kindergartners learn that immediately because they bring the marshmallow in. I, I just think this is really fascinating. I think it has something to do, at least the way I want to look at it this morning, that has something to do with who you trust, you see. It's just a hard word for some of us because we really do trust our ability to lead and run things and make a plan and execute that plan. We just trust that. We just think we're smart and we think we know what we're doing. And I think heaven laughs at us and our plans, particularly when we're trying to do something supernatural. I have three. Do you know Arthur C. Clarke, the great science fiction writer? I won't ask you about authors anymore. Um, <laughs> he, he said something in one of his novels I was reading recently. He said something like, politics is the art of the possible. Politics is the art of the possible. And therefore... It is the interest of second-rate minds. First-rate minds are interested only in the impossible. I thought that was fascinating. We are interested in the impossible, not the possible. The thing which we've been asked to do, the thing we've been commissioned to do by God in the world, is not something human beings can do. Do you understand that? We cannot save people. We cannot forgive people. We cannot heal people. We cannot drive out demons. We cannot plan and execute a strategy that will remove powers and principalities from this world. We cannot do that. Do you understand that? What you have been asked to do, to make disciples of all nations and to see them obey, baptize and, and, and obey all that Jesus has commanded is beyond your ability to plan and execute. Can you understand that? And because we've taken on that, because we've taken on the art of the impossible, it puts us in a really tough position if we want to trust in our own powers and our own intellect and our own ability to plan and execute. And maybe kindergartners understand that better than we do. They don't trust in their plans. They just try. 
and in the trying, something happens. And the results are better. Who does the best kind of ministry? I want you to really think about this. Who does the best kind of ministry? Is it the professionals with the degrees who work so hard to decide who's in charge? And then to make their plans and their website and, and then execute those plans and those strategies and then analyze those plans and put metrics on those plans. Are those the people that do the best ministry? Or are, actually, is it the neophyte, the new guy who's just been hit so powerfully with the, with the grace of God and the power of God that he runs out in the street and just believes he can pray for people and they'll be healed. He believes he can share this truth and their lives will be changed. And actually, I wonder if that person, those people, actually do better ministry. Because they, they, they know not to trust in themselves. All this, Paul said, happens that we might not rely on ourselves. Which is the worst thing you can do in ministry. But God. I mean, I, I've, already, I've already been candid about my own, my own journey, um, you know, lately and the last maybe couple years. And... I can remember just sitting even in my backyard, you know, a month ago, two months ago, just, just sitting in my backyard, just, just with my, my, my face in my hands and just saying, God, what, what, what you have put on my shoulders, what you have put into my hands is, is just too much for me. And I don't, I don't have a way through. I don't know what to do. And I just, I'm just clinging to him. My prayers are so, they're so basic, they're so primitive now. I mean, my children and their, their sort of adolescent and, and early adult struggles, they're just, they're just more than you can do, more than you can handle, more than you can bear. There aren't, I don't have solutions. I, I used to have ideas, you know, I used to have solutions. People come to me for my ideas, you know. Tell me what to do, Brian. Well, let me think about this. I have some ideas because I'm so competent and so on and now I just I just I feel like it's not true but I feel like there's like drool just dripping down my like some sort of village idiot like I just I don't know I just <laughs> pray let's pray let's let's cry out I, I don't know what to do what you ask is beyond me my my daughter the betrayals I've experienced the churches we've lost this, this stupid theater, uh, on and on the list goes, so that I might not rely on myself but on God. It is a grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. And I find myself in that place of desperation, sitting in my backyard, realizing, God, I feel so close to you right now. The thing I actually want more than anything in this world is to feel his pleasure, to be close to him. More than I want to see mission accomplished or more than I want to, to see all of you succeed, all these things I pray for, all these things which burden my heart, the one thing that I actually want more than anything in the whole world is to just feel His presence, to just be His Son, to be close to Him. And that's what I feel now. So how can I not be thankful then for these light and momentary troubles? 
I begin to see the, the, the contrast, the, the paradox. And all those of us who are educated and wise in our own eyes, and those of us that have our plans and our processes and our strategy, and there's a place for that. My, those of you that work on staff, you still have to turn in your goals next month. It's not, you're not like, this is new day. We don't have to know. It's, we're still going to do that. But <laughs> those of us that have our strategies and our goals, I, I, I think we, we, we risk a great peril because we start to think, we start to act as if ministry is something we can do without God. And it isn't. Yes, we, we have taken on the impossible. We've been asked to do the impossible, something which is beyond us. Of course, it's going to be hard, guys. <laughs> Did you think you can't have, you, can't, you, you just can't have Dietrich Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship on your shelf next to Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now? They don't go together. They don't, you don't get, <laughs> you can buy them both, but you can't live them both. Do you understand? Your best life now is not Bonhoeffer's death and martyrdom. It isn't. That's not your best life now. That's your best life later, maybe, but it's not your best life now. Or maybe it is. Maybe at some deeper level there's a joy which is only possible for those that pour themselves out. Who experience the pleasure of the Father doing what it is that He sent you to do and asked you to do. Maybe that thing has just become so foreign from us, so, so, so distant from our, from our existential knowledge that we don't even know to ask for it anymore. We don't even know to crave it anymore. We actually think when we sell this, this, this cheapened version of happiness or this cheapened version of Christianity, we actually think that we're giving people something good. By the way, piety... I find that, in the, I find that in, the, in the throes of some of the most difficult days and times of my own life, I find that piety is easy. I remember a time when I was a college student or something, and I thought, you know, I gotta, I gotta have a quiet time. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta pray every day, and I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta write in my prayer journal, and I, wanna, and I wanna make sure I read my two chapters a day, and I wanna make sure I'm going through, and I make sure I'm sharing my faith. Listen, listen, I'm gonna tell you something. If you'll really thrust yourself into this kind of life with God, th- those things will not be a problem anymore. I don't have to wake up and be like, okay, d- discipline. I must discipline myself to read the Bible. Do you not know? I, pu- I scour the Bible for life, for answers, for hope, for, for, for a whisper of his voice. I'm not worried about my prayer life anymore. Are you kidding me? And by the way, I'm not worried about holiness as much anymore. Listen, when, when you're in the throes and, and you have such desperate need for God in the world around you and, and somebody wants to put something on TV which is a little questionable, a little sketchy, and maybe you wouldn't watch it if Jesus was next to you, you have no interest in that. It's easy to turn away. Holiness is something I want now, not because so I can be upright so that Christians can think highly of me or so that I can make sure that I'm not doing anything wrong uh, uh, so that I get like merit badges in heaven or something like that. So God's happy with me because you know, God, God is some sort of like uh, uh, you know, policeman or something like that. But instead, I want holiness because I don't want anything to separate me from him. 
Because I can't, I can't let any, anything that, that might be sin or might be danger to my, to my spiritual life to keep me from the one that is life for me in the midst of this death. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, uh, you know, that's a byproduct, you see, piety. Piety is not something you pursue directly. Piety is a result of life lived in the presence of God. And he says, on this, on him we have set our hope. On him we have set our hope. I sense a couple of you are getting restless. Should I just stop now? Are you good? Should we keep going? Keep going? I know it's been a while since you heard a long sermon, so I have one more point. Can we do it? Can we handle it? Okay. I'm here to serve. Although the kids' church people hate me, but anyway, that's different. <laughs> On him we've set our hope. On him instead of something else. This also is a threat, a challenge to us, not to put our hope in something else. I'm fascinated by this idea, uh, what's called risk homeostasis. Maybe, maybe you've heard me talk about it before. But I think it also relates to faith or trust. This is part of what I wanna, I'm trying to unpack here is where we put our trust. It simply says that we, we have a certain amount of risk that we will take in our life. And I think risk is related to faith. That is to say, we take risks when we think we can survive. We think somehow we can come out on the other side of it. And so, you know, there's... there's each of us are actually wired. We are made to take risks. We are made to trust. We are made to, have, to put our faith somewhere. I mean, if you think of the way that, that, that Paul puts it in, in Romans 10, he, he's talking about, you know, to each is given a measure of faith. We, we all have faith. Like there's a container in your life that holds faith. And some of you have a ton of it and some of you have a little bit of it, but you got to invest it somewhere. You're going to invest it somewhere. You're going you're gonna to try something. You're going to take a risk somewhere. And risk homeostasis says that when you save, when you conserve risk in one area, you just consume it in another area. In other words, you cannot actually save risk. You can't save it for a later day. You will simply take that risk somewhere else. A, a classic uh, example is that there was a, a study done on German taxi cabs in the 70s when they were making the transition from the, the, the cabs not having anti-lock brakes to having anti-lock brakes. And so what they did is they took, they took the cabs that still had the old locking braking systems and they measured how many accidents they had and then they took a bunch of cabs and they gave them anti-lock brakes to see how many fewer accidents that the cabs would have well here's what they discovered they discovered that the guys that were given anti-lock brakes had just as many and in many cases more accidents than the other guys so they were given a safer car which which should result to, i maybe i was i I don't, maybe you're not getting me here. They should have had less accidents, you understand, because they have a safer braking system, and yet they had more. How is that possible? Well, here's why. At least this is the argument, that, 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 that when they conserved risk in the braking, what they did is they sped up. They drove faster. They took corners harder. The risk that they conserved in their brakes, so when you drove the old cab, you drove slower because you knew your brakes couldn't handle it. Do you understand? 
And now that your brakes can handle it, they simply consume that risk in other risky driving behavior. Do you understand? This is why I think more people are killed on crosswalks, more pedestrians are killed on crosswalks than outside of crosswalks. Because why? Because when you see the white lines, you think you're safe. You think, oh, you don't have to look. Am I right? And then when you, when, you, when, you, when you don't have a crosswalk, you're looking, you're looking, you're looking, you're looking. This is dangerous. You know it's dangerous. But the white lines, they will protect you. They're like a, they're like a force field around you. They're not a force field around you. So you don't look as hard. You don't pay as much attention. You think you're safe. When you see the little white man, say, come on. Don't trust him. Don't believe him. You see the white man say, come on, walk. You're fine. It's safe. We've made white lines for you to walk in. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. You're not safe. So, so, so we, we, we're, we're built, we're wired to take a certain amount of risk. And if we conserve it in one area, we simply take it somewhere else. This is why, by the way, more kids have, more kids have died and, and, and from taking pharmaceuticals since the inception of the child safety cap. Because when you didn't have a thing that said child-proof on it, you, 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 put your, you put your dangerous pills in a place they could not reach them. Oh, God, this is, you know, Junior could get into these. Let's, let's hide them. And now it's like, well, it's child-proof. Here, Junior, it's a rattle. Play with it. Come on. <laughs> I think, it's, I think faith is the same. I, I, think, I think we're given a certain amount of faith, a certain amount of trust. And if you put your trust in yourself, there won't be any left for God. And if you put your trust in God, there won't be any left for you. It really is like that. It really is like that. You can't conserve faith. It's going to get spent somewhere. It's going to get consumed by your life. And if you choose not to trust in God, if you choose not to trust in his, his work in your life, if you choose not to trust his way, his, his, his version of holiness, listen, some of you struggle with something like your sexuality. You think, like, I, I sort of think I should be able to do my sexuality the way I want to, and maybe the Bible says this, or maybe, mm, but I, I just, I wanna do it my own way, or what culture is saying, or the time in which I live, or something like that. Listen, that's fine, but recognize that you are making a faith bet. You're trusting something. You're trusting your own ability to understand proper sexuality. You're trusting your own, your own perception of, you're trusting your own culture and the time in which you live to be true and right and correct and pure and holy that will echo throughout eternity rather than trusting God. It's a choice you're making. And this is true in all the aspects of our life. You can either put your faith in God Put your faith in Him. Trust Him with your ministry. Trust Him with this person who's in front of you. Trust Him with this problem. Or you can try to figure it out yourself and put your trust in yourself. But once you do that, I'm just saying, you're going to use it all up, you see. The best thing for our spiritual lives and for the whole world, actually, is for us to be in situations where only God will do. Or we have to actually. We come to the end of what we know we can do, what we believe we can do. That's the best thing for us. It's the best place to be because then we turn upward 
Because then we reach for something which is beyond us. Because then the supernatural becomes possible. Jesus himself becomes present in that void, in that emptiness. And we say, I don't know how. I can't. This is beyond me. This is why the kindergartner is better than us. Because they implicitly know that. Let me invite up Emily. I, I, I'm just, I'll, just, I'll just leave you with this last thought. He says, as you help us by your prayers. And this was brought up, at least mentioned earlier. He has delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us again. That's where we put our faith. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. That's where we choose to trust. That's where we choose to put our faith. And then he says, and this is connected, and so on him we have set our hope. That he will continue to deliver us. What are you going through right now? What are you facing? Because I'm, I'm coming to realize that I'm not the only one struggling. I'm not the only one fighting. I'm not the only one in a battle. In fact, I'm, re- I'm coming to realize that every single person that I lock eyes with in my life is also in a battle. Maybe you don't know it. Maybe you're still petting your dog. It's fine. It's fine. He loves me. We're bonding. Life is good. Ministry is good. My microchurch is awesome. <laughs> but most of us know we're in a fight. And so he, he finishes then with this. He says, He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. And again, I'm just going to confess because I, I, I think I'm just, I'm just a complete failure at this. That I have never liked asking people to pray for me. And I've always felt uncomfortable when people pray for me and offer to pray for me. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just telling you right now, that is not something to be proud of. I, I, I think that is a great, deep, profound problem in my life. And Paul, as strong as he is, as bold as he is, as, as brave as he is, as innovative as he is, and as emotionally honest as he is, he's like, you, you, I, I'm surviving because you pray for me because of your prayers for me. And that's, that's, that's amazing. It's not just that we pray. It's not just that I'm saying, God, come on, deliver me, help me, save me. And there is that, there is that father-son, that connection where he wants to because his son is asking. But there's something else that happens when I pray for you, when you pray for me. That actually some things, some, some deliverance only comes because we pray for each other. And some deliverance only comes because I ask for you on your behalf and you ask on my behalf. This is part of what Paul is saying. It's because of your prayers, your prayers, not just mine, but your prayers for us that we somehow have made it through this. Uh, Stuart, Stuart said at, at, at the open conference, prayer is weak. Prayer is weakness. It's a weak, it, it's, it's, prayer is weak in the flesh, but strong in God. Prayer is, prayer is, prayer is weak in strategy, but strong in faith and trusting God. We need this from each other. And actually, 
God has been sending people to me to say, I'm praying for you, I prayed for you. Some of you have communicated to me that you're praying for me. And I'm learning, I'm, I'm, I'm slow, but I'm learning to, to really cherish that. Uh, some of you may know one of our, one of our Mike Church leaders, his name is Matt Chesser. And he came up to me at the conference. He, he was sort of avoiding talking to me about this, but he felt God actually on the, the, the week before, felt God put something on his heart. He just felt very strongly that he was supposed to do something and he's trying to avoid it. You know how that is. You're trying to, mm, hey, that's not right. I don't know if I want to. But God just kept hitting him with this thing. And so finally he came to me uh, on the, the, the last few minutes of the conference when the conference was ending. He came up to me and said, Brian, I just want to tell you something. I feel I need to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, I, I think God is, is calling me to do something. And I need, I need you to know what it is. I said, okay. I'm thinking it has something to do with mission or his calling or his, his the people that he leads or whatever and he said I, I think God is telling me I'm supposed to intercede for you every day and I just I wanted to tell him no I wanted to tell him like pick a pick a better ministry you know what I mean like that's not surely you have a there's a better thing for you to be praying for and I just sat there and I soaked in this this moment where this this human being who's counted on by others is, is maybe hearing God or, or, or not, I don't know, but, but, but sensing that he's supposed to do this like every single day. He said, I'm, I'm set, I've set an alarm on my phone at 7 o'clock every morning. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to pray for you. I'm supposed to be praying for you. I'm supposed to be holding you up. And I just, I just felt, I, I felt like I wanted to fall and crumble on the ground. It's like you don't know how much you need something sometimes until it arrives. And please, I'm not, I'm, I don't tell that story to solicit prayers. Please don't come up to me and say, I also want to join your... I mean, unless you're supposed to, I guess, but... I mean, Paul is strong enough to to ask for those prayers and to recognize that his strength, his survival is dependent on it. We have to pray for each other. We have to ask for it. It may be the only practical way we have to show ourselves and the world we are not the answer. Because we love to sit in our rooms and talk. We love to strategize. And, 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 I, and I, I, I'm, I'm in these rooms, I'm in these places now more than I probably want to be with, with, with people that want, that they love to lead churches and plant churches and create churches and change the church and shape the church and they all despise prayer. Nobody wants to pray. Like it's a waste of time. We've all flown in from around and we, we need to strategize and we need to talk and we need to put all our heads together and we need to show God how smart we are. And nobody prays. And we're not stronger because of that. We're weaker because of that. We're not wise. We're foolish. We need to say to each other, come on, it's your prayers that will hold me up. I need you. I need you to pray for me. We need together to turn to the only one that has the strength to do this. This is about where we put our trust. This is about not, not relying on our own strengths. It is about somehow letting God be sufficient for us. If you bow your heads, Lord, 
this morning I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what you want to do in each of our hearts maybe there's one thing one idea that's reverberating right now inside of us So Holy Spirit, I, I ask that you just put your finger on that, whatever it is. Maybe, 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 maybe some of us this morning, we just need to straight up repent. We just need to say, God, I've been trusting myself. I'm sorry. I don't want to. I, I, I want to trust you. Maybe some of us this morning, we're recognizing I need prayer. I need someone to pray for me. And so, so that's the, the, the burden you put on us that we're, we need to turn to someone even, even this morning, even, even, even today to turn and say, would you pray for me? Would you covenant with me? Would you hold me up? Maybe, maybe the, the word this morning for some of us is to be honest, to tell someone even today that we're struggling, that it hasn't been going as good as we say. that we're, we're feeling more desperate than we've let on. Guys, just, just give a minute to the Holy Spirit as you come to this table to come with that word in your heart, that, that need, that prayer. Because on the night he was betrayed, after he'd given thanks, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat it to remember me same way after supper he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant my blood shed for the forgiveness of sin drink it all of you to remember me and so we come to this table again this morning needy hungry in some cases despairing in some cases needing hope and so we put our trust in you we come we come here to this table, not to some other. So guys, there's a table, two tables up here. There's two tables back there. Uh, these guys will just lead us in one more song. And you can, you can, when you're ready, when your hearts are ready, you can make your way to one of those tables.